Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 307. It's titled, Income Share Agreements, Good for Students or Investors? Over five years ago, in episode 45 of Money for the Rest of Us, I introduced income share agreements as a way to partially fund college. An income share agreement is a contract where individuals agree to pay a certain percentage of their income for a set period of time in exchange for an upfront payment that is usually used to pay for education costs, but can be used for other things. For example, a line income share funding says that you can get an ISA for home repairs, debt consolidation, paying a medical bill, or even planning your wedding. Not sure I would do an income share agreement for most of those things. They are traditionally used to invest in what is known as human capital, our ability to earn money by getting more education. Another name for income share agreements is human capital contracts. Income share agreements were first proposed by the economist Milton Freeman in a 1955 essay titled The Role of Government in Education. He wrote, vocational or professional education is a form of investment in human capital, precisely analogous to investment in machinery, buildings, or other forms of non-human capital. Its function is to raise economic productivity of the human being. If it does so, the individual is rewarded in a free enterprise society by receiving a higher return for his services than he would otherwise be able to command. We discussed this concept some in episode 245, Is College Worth It?, and determined there is a positive financial return in investing in human capital by attending college. You can earn more. You build your social capital, your network. You gain knowledge. Having a college degree allows you to pass filters that many companies put in place with their hiring practice in that they only hire individuals with college degrees. Freeman continued, if a fixed money loan is made to finance investment in physical capital, the lender can get some security for his loan in the form of a mortgage or a residual claim to the physical asset itself. And he can count on realizing at least part of his investment in case of necessity by selling the physical asset. In other words, the lender has some collateral that could be sold in the case of default. But Freeman points out a problem if the loan is made to invest in human capital. He writes, The lender clearly cannot get any comparable security. In a non-slave state, the individual embodying the investment cannot be bought and sold. Friedman then pointed out that because there isn't collateral, that the interest rate charged on student loans would have to be sufficiently high to compensate for the capital loss because there wouldn't be collateral, and that the interest rate would have to be so high, making the loans unattractive to borrowers. Now, a solution was found. Federal guaranteed student loans. The total U.S. student loan debt Private and federal is $1.64 trillion. Only $124 billion of that $1.6 trillion is private. The average federal student loan debt balance is $35,000, and the default rate is high. 
11.1%. It's particularly challenging for individuals that have taken on a lot of student loan debt to pay it off. A Brookings Institution study from 2018 found that the median borrower who had less than $50,000 in student loan debt in the early 2000s paid off their debt within 10 years, while the median borrower that had more than $50,000 in student loan debt 10 years later still owed about 75%. And most of the students falling behind on their student loan debt are those that have a balance greater than $50,000. Friedman's proposed solution, income share agreements, they weren't necessarily called that, But he said that a contract could be structured where an investor would buy a share in an individual's earnings prospects to advance him the funds needed to finance his training on condition that he agrees to pay the lender a specified fraction of his future earnings. In this way, Friedman wrote, a lender would get back more than his initial investment from relatively successful individuals, which would compensate for the failure to recoup his original investment from the unsuccessful. There seems no legal obstacle to private contracts of this kind, even though they are economically equivalent to the purchase of a share in an individual's earning capacity, and thus to partial slavery. These ISA agreements have been criticized, perhaps not slavery, but certainly indentured servitude. Although Miguel Palacios Lleras, in his book Investing in Human Capital, felt that the analogy to slavery or indentured servitude was incorrect because the students retain the full freedom of action. They're not forced to stay in a given job or even to work in the field in which they trained in. So they have the ability to to work anywhere they want. Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from one of this week's sponsors, LinkedIn Jobs. Small businesses have unique needs, and despite the current uncertainty, One thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help by matching your role with qualified candidates so that you can find the right person quickly. I like to go on LinkedIn Jobs to see what jobs LinkedIn recommends I apply for based on my background and credentials. LinkedIn is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for and puts your job in front of qualified members every day so that it is seen by people looking for jobs like yours, just like I saw jobs recommended to me that fit my background. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, find the right person with LinkedIn Jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash David. Again, that's linkedin.com slash David to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. There are several components to a income share agreement. There's the funding amount, the percentage of your income you pay called the income share. There is no interest. This is not debt. This is really an equity investment. You often don't need a cosigner. There's the payback period, which is how many months do you have to pay that certain percent of your income? There's a grace period before payment starts. So if you take out an income share agreement while you're still studying, often there's a grace period before you have to start paying a percent of your income. 
there's a payment cap. If your income goes really high and you're paying a lot of money as part of this income share agreement, at some point, you'll reach a cap, in which case your ISA contract ends. There's a minimum income threshold below which you don't have to make any payments. And then there's the payment window, which is the length of time that the contract is in place. So, for example, you might have an ISA agreement where you have to make 90 monthly payments of 3% of your income. But if you fall below the minimum income threshold of $20,000, you're unemployed, then you don't have to make a payment. But the clock is still ticking. And so if you went for 150 months, that was the payment window, and only made payments in 50 of those months, the ISA contract would still end and you wouldn't have to make the remaining payments. And looking then at the structure of these income share agreements, there's a great deal of flexibility that can be beneficial for the student because if you lose your job, the interest is not accruing. You just defer the payment, but you're not accruing additional interest. We'll look at some specific examples of ISA contracts here in a few minutes. They are used more and more, but they're not widely adopted because you need three components. You need the school willing to structure the ISA agreements. You need the students willing to use them rather than use student loans. And you need investors willing to fund these ISA agreements. And so the percentage of income needs to be enough to entice investors to provide the capital. Although in some cases, the schools provide the capital. And there are companies that work with schools to help design these programs. Vimo Education is one example. Their CEO said, nobody has an income share agreement problem at a college. They have some other problem they are trying to fix. And so this particular company designs income share agreements to help colleges fulfill a strategic objective or to solve a problem. Example is University of Utah found that their six-year graduation rate badly lagged other peer institutions. And so they're piloting an ISA program to really target those that are having trouble graduating, perhaps because they're having to work so much as they get through college. But these can be very helpful contracts. Messiah College, located in rural Pennsylvania, they're using ISA agreements for those students that, that have a gap. They've reached the federal limit on grants and loans, and they've structured their program so that these income share payments go back into the pool and then can be used for other students. David Walker, their vice president for finance and planning, said, we're able to start a revolving pay-it-forward type program. Students will help fund the viability of this program for future Messiah students. Purdue University is one of the first colleges to establish a successful program, and their program started in 2016. Now, there are some challenges with these ISA agreements, and a number of them were pointed out by Andrew Gillen, who's a senior policy analyst for the Texas Public Policy Foundation. One item he pointed out was adverse selection. Students who think they'll earn more are less likely to enter into an ISA agreement because loans would be cheaper. And so these ISA agreements become attractive to those that think they will earn less, which means the potential return for investors is lower. And if it falls below some threshold, then the percent of income that needs to be shared would have to be higher. 
There's also the potential problem of differential pricing. If there was a woman and a man with a similar degree, will investors require a higher percent of income from women because they might be more likely to leave the labor force to give birth to a child? There's the moral hazard issue where the individuals who take out the ISA agreements have an incentive not to report income. The way these typically are structured is the individual self-reports raises or income increases, and then the ISA sponsor also pulls tax return data to verify income. ISA contracts are effectively unregulated. There is no protection for the students or the ISA sponsors. Senators Young, Rubio, and Warner did introduce the ISA Student Protection Act of 2019. It was read twice and then referred to the Committee on Finance, and nothing has happened since then that I was able to find. Andrew Gillen believes a solution to some of these challenges with ISA agreements is a different contract called Income Contingent Lending where it's not an equity investment, but income contingent lending is actually a loan. The payments are based on the percent of an income, but there's no payment window in which once that window closes, then even if the recipient hasn't made the required number of payments, they're released from the contract with an ICL, it's open-ended. The recipient continues to make payments until the loan is paid off. As a student, it's important to weigh how does an ISA compare to student loans. A loan is relatively straightforward. You have the principal amount, the term, the interest rate, and while deferral is allowed, ultimately interest accrues, and it's a fairly straightforward amortization. But with an ISA, how do you model what your income will be in the future? Now, as an investor in an ISA agreement, the relevant measure to figure out what the rate of return is, is something called an internal rate of return. It's a rate of return that would make an investor indifferent between receiving a lump sum cash flow today and that cash flow into the future. One way to look at it, let's suppose an outflow, an investment of $100,000, and then for 120 months, an investor received a certain cash flow stream each month. The eternal rate of return would be the interest rate or the discount rate that would take those future cash flows, discount them into the present so that they equal the initial outflow. That's all it is. It's that rate of return that takes future cash flows, discounts them to the present so that they equal the initial outflow. For the case of an ISA contract, that outflow is the amount paid to the student for education. And then we have to estimate what those future cash flows will be. Knowing what the outflow was, the funding amount, we know what the percent of income to be paid. What we don't know is how the income will increase in the future due to raises. So there's an estimate for that. And we can take those cash flows, figure out that discount rate, which is the eternal rate of return, and then see if that's high enough for us. Or what is it, period? Before we continue, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. I want to tell you about an amazing online community and newsletter that I'm a part of. It's the ultimate knowledge hub from The Hustle called Trends. Trends is both a newsletter and a community. 
of industry leaders in virtually every field where you can learn how to capitalize on emerging opportunities. I read a comprehensive study on trends about the newsletter business, which parallels the business that I am in in providing investment education. One of the cool things about trends is their weekly live lectures. They have experts who teach growth strategies, SEO, or how to send the perfect cold email. The community allows you to ask questions from a very experienced community that is willing to help. I'm enjoying the Trends community so much, I want to share it with you. Right now, you can get your first two weeks for just $1. Go to trends.co slash David to start your $1 two-week trial. That's trends.co slash David for your $1 two-week trial. Trends.co slash David. The student in comparing an ISA contract to a student loan, is concerned about what's the total payment? How much will need to be repaid, including principal and interest for a student loan, or with regards to total amount of income paid during the payment window for an ISA contract? Let's look at some examples to help understand these contracts. This is from the University of Utah, an individual studying business administration. Their expected salary when they graduate is $45,724. They could enter an ISA contract that has 90 payments of 3.96% of income. That would equate, based on that starting salary, initially $151 per month. The minimum income threshold is $20,000, so if the individual earned less than $20,000, they wouldn't have to make any payments. The payment cap is $20,000. This is based on an initial funding amount of $10,000, so the funding cap is two times. The student would not have to pay more than two times what they received. And then the payment window is 150 months. So only 90 months of payments are required, but if payments were deferred, then that counts toward the payment window. But after 150 months, even though the student hasn't made 90 payments, the contract ends. If we assume the annual raise is 6%, then the total payments under the ISA contract would be $16,560. And the internal rate of return on this contract would be 14.4%. We can compare that to a direct plus loan, the federal loan, where the interest rate is 5.3%. 120 months of payment, the total payments would be $13,952 compared to the $16,560 for the ISA contract, assuming a a 6% raise. A private student loan where interest rates are 9.5%, 120 payments, total outflow would be $1,611. From a student standpoint, a 9.5% interest rate student loan, total outflows, would be the same as a ISA contract for 90 months if the annual raise was 6%. But if it wasn't, if the student didn't get any raise, then the total payments would be much less than that, and the IRR for the investor would be 8.9%. Each university has a different program. Clarkson University has a limited number of spots, and their example is someone that receives $40,000 in tuition, would pay 6.2% 
of their income for 10 years. And if they get a 7% raise, the IRR, the internal rate of return is zero. In other words, this program is it's more like impact investing, where the university is willing to take essentially a 0% return in order to help a limited number of students. Lambda is a coding academy, for-profit school that's been around four years. It's venture-backed. They only have really two degrees, web development and data science. They have a really unique program where you don't make any payments if you make less than $50,000. You have to pay 17% of your income for 24 months. The payment window is 60 months. So if you actually were receiving $50,000, you'd make $708 a month payment. If you're making less than $50,000, you don't have to pay anything. And the payment cap is $30,000. This one was really interesting because if you made 24 payments and you only earned $50,000 that whole time, your total payments would be $17,510. If we assume the tuition is $30,000 and students have the option of just paying that up front, then the eternal rate of return on that contract is negative 38%, which means the, the real tuition that the school needs is much less than $30,000. They're spending a lot of time trying to place the students because the college doesn't get paid if the students can't get jobs that earn more than $50,000 a year. One of the things Lambda has done is they sell about half of their ISA contracts. They're sold at a deep discount to their actual value, which means the rate of return is much higher so that the school can get funding for operations. And this is what brought ISA contracts back to my attention. There was a discussion on the member forums about a company called Edly, E-D-L-Y, that allows investors to invest in ISA contracts. They are projecting returns of 8% to 14%. And the lower amount, the 8%, has some principal protection using U.S. government bonds. They have ISA contracts on 2,100 students and say their historical return to investors has been 16.43%. They've only been doing this since 2019, so there's less than one year's worth of return. A 14% return seems really high. In order to generate that return, either you need to be buying ISA's contracts at very deep discounts in other words, for less than the, the funding amount so that your rate of return is higher or the percentage of income the students pay have to be much higher. I took a look at Edley. You have to be an accredited investor. I started the process of signing up so I could look at the documentation and understand the fees. The fees are extremely high. You're essentially hiring Edley to be an investment advisor to choose ISA contracts for you but they're charging a 4% annual management fee and can charge an additional 1% in fund expenses. So 5% fees. To generate a 14% internal rate of return, which is what they're hoping to get, plus 5% fees, that's a 19% gross IRR. A student that was funded with $10,000 has a starting salary of $45,000 would need to pay 4.3% of their income for 120 months. Total payments is $22,183. The cap would have to be more than two times the $10,000 funding amount. So it's not an outrageous amount of income. Some of the other examples we gave, it was 3.1, 3.9. This would need to be 4.3%. So it is possible. 
I have no idea why that they're charging that level of fees. And in looking through the documentation, which is really, really important anytime you make an alternative investment, is to study the documentation. And there was not a whole lot of detail here as to exactly how they were going to go about that, nor was there any description at all of this principal protection program. But it's fairly open-ended. They talk about how the advisor has full power and authority to manage on a discretionary basis the cash, securities, and other assets that from time to time will comprise the account. It says the client acknowledges and agrees that ISA securities in the account are illiquid and cannot be withdrawn from the account. You can withdraw cash, but you can't withdraw the ISA contracts, and there's no real stipulation with how many will be in the, in the portfolio and, and exactly what they will be buying. So you're you're hiring an advisor to manage some assets for you, but you don't have a lot of input as to how they go about that. That's not necessarily something that I'm interested in doing, but there are investors that are willing to do that and hire Edley to select ISA contracts. Compared to five years ago when I looked at ISAs, there are more firms there's more infrastructure. There's companies that just focus on helping colleges implement ISA contracts. Vimo is an example. Another company is Leaf, L-E-I-F. They help colleges, but they also process these ISA contract payments. I still think from a student standpoint that these can be attractive because you have greater optionality. You're not forced into one career. If you go through a, a rough patch where you're unemployed, you're not accruing interest, it comes down to what's the initial percentage of income being paid relative to the funding amount. These examples we looked at were based on $10,000 of funding, and students were paying 3 to 4% of their income. Given the cost of college, it would be very difficult to fund your entire college with ISA contracts, especially if it was a private school. So these only work for a portion of the tuition. Otherwise, the percent of income paid would be significantly higher unless it's set up like Clarkson University, like an impact investment where the payment amount was 6.2% for $40,000 funding amount. Assuming a 7% raise, the IRR, the internal rate of return was zero. These can have a role. There's still some things that are uncertain, such as what the impact is on your credit score if you defer payments or default and go missing. From an investment standpoint, there's not a whole lot of opportunity. Edley is one example, but you don't really get a good look at what type of contracts are being bought. And at least right now on the website, there wasn't the ability to invest in a specific ISA or a pool of ISA where you can look at the criteria, who are the students, et cetera. You're, you effectively just have to hire them as an advisor. Perhaps there will be more opportunities to do that. But for students, I think it's something to look at. For investors, we need more detail, and that's episode 307. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free weekly insider's guide. This is an email newsletter I send out just to that list with information on that week's podcast, links to all the articles I reference in the podcast, as well as an essay on money, investing, and the economy. Some of the best writing I do each week goes to Insider's Guide members, and you can sign up for that at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I've not considered your specific risk situation. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week. <laughs>